How many of you are brave enough to admit that at some point in however many years you've been alive, that you've had that many Thanksgivings, that you have called the Butterball Hotline? Has anybody here called that before? Raise your hand. All right, Carrie, thank you. I appreciate your honesty. Um, oh, it was a text. That still counts. That's all right. No one else has called. Since its inception, they have had over three million phone calls. They've been around for over two decades. Three million people have called them with questions about how they are to cook their turkey. I thought that one of the ways that we might continue to begin to express our Thanksgiving and our Thanksgiving weeks, I want to share with you what I found were 10 of the most interesting real-life phone calls that were called in to the Butterball Hotline. Okay? I didn't make these up. Number one, someone called in and said, can I thaw my turkey in the toilet? <laughs> Hope that wasn't your uncle that said that, all right? Number two, my cat started eating my raw turkey. What do I do now? <laughs> I think my answer would be you call Papa John's, right? Uh, and you put turkey on my pizza. But number three, can I cook a 30-year-old turkey? Listen, listen to the story. It says, after discovering a turkey from 1969 in his dad's freezer, a man from Alabama, of course he's from Alabama, right? <laughs> of course. Better than Kentucky. Uh, he called to ask about the best way to cook the 30-plus-year-old turkey. Number four, how can I thaw my turkey on my car luggage rack safely? The expert said, I told her I don't think necessarily she can do that safely, but she wouldn't listen. She kept saying that I'm going to do it anyway. Number five, will chainsaw oil affect my roast? <laughs> One man called to tell the operator that he cut the turkey in half with, of course, a chainsaw, and he wanted to know if the oil from the chain would adversely affect the turkey. <laughs> Hope that wasn't mine. Number six. How did the meat disappear from my turkey? This is my favorite one. Listen to this. After a conversation with the operator, it became apparent that the woman's turkey was what? Lying on the table upside down, and she couldn't find the meat that was there. <laughs> Number seven, you've heard this one before. Why do I have to cut the legs off? You know where this is going, right? The operator learned the only reason the caller always cut the legs off was why? Because her mom's oven was too small, and she always had to cut it off to get the bird in there. So she thought, that's what, I guess everyone has to do that, right? Number eight, why won't my turkey stop sudsing? Listen to this. Turns out the woman had washed the bird with dish soap for 20 minutes, and the suds wouldn't stop coming as she washed her bird. Number nine, I have some sympathy for this one, because I sometimes wonder about this. Should I remove the plastic wrap before I cook my turkey? <laughs> How many of you have had those plastic meals, those TV dinners, and I'm always, can I keep that plastic? I have sympathy for that one. Number 10, and finally, can I cook the turkey on the engine block of my semi-truck while driving? <laughs> but there's one more question, and if so, if I drive faster, will it cook faster? <laughs> All about efficiency, right? This morning, as we get, move into Thanksgiving week, I want us to look at three very short verses. They're three incredibly short verses, but they're powerful verses. In fact, I believe that if we take these three verses to heart, that they have the opportunity to revolutionize our life. And I recognize sometimes that public speakers or even pastors will use hyperbole and say, this is the most important thing, but I, I truly believe this. 
I truly believe that if we would not only understand these three verses, but if we would take them to heart, if we would live them out, it would revolutionize how we live our lives. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Now listen, you can use your table of contents. No one's going to look down on you. In fact, your neighbor will be glad that you're using it as well. But I want you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be in chapter 5. In fact, I'm going to turn there as you are as well. Paul is writing this letter. You know, this was a letter that he wrote to a church in Thessalonica. And the purpose of this letter, remember, I always think it's important that we understand the context so we don't take Scripture and we try to twist it to mean what it, mean what it doesn't actually mean. So he's writing this letter to really a group of new believers in this church, and he's giving them instructions on how they are to live out their Christian life. So if you're there, and if you're not, it's okay, because we'll have the words on the screen. Stand with me as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The three verses that we're going to be reading are verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes these words, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're going to dive into each of these three commands that Paul gives. And by the way, it's important that we understand these aren't three suggestions. These aren't three, hey, if you think about it, hey, if you're a super Christian, no, these are three commands that Paul gives, not only to the church in Thessalonica, but I believe he would be sharing them with us today, even as we continue to grow in our faith. By the way, what are the three commands? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and then to give thanks in all circumstances. But before we jump into detail of what Paul means by those three commands, I think it's important that we first understand the end of that statement there. We look at verse 18 and understand there's, there's kind of a clause. The only way that you're able to do these three commands, that you're able to obey these three commands, is if you take verse 18 to heart. Look at verse 18 again. He says, For this is the will of of God in who? In Christ Jesus. So don't miss this, church. What Paul is saying is the only way that we have the ability to obey these three commands that we're going to be reading in just a moment, studying, is if we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying that without being in union with Christ— which means without saying that I, I, I've confessed my sins, that I'm turning to Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I'm denying all that I have, and I'm putting my eyes, my focus, my trust completely in Jesus, without doing that, then you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you do not have the ability to obey these commands. In fact, I'll take it a step further. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you because you've trusted Christ, not only will you not have the ability to obey these three commands, you're not going to have the desire to obey these commands. This is a problem that I think that too many times that as Christians that we, we take for granted. And we get upset at the world, and we get so confused at why those who don't have faith in Christ, why they act the way they do. Why they don't prioritize, why they don't value biblical things, why they don't have a biblical worldview. Church, they shouldn't have a biblical worldview. 
These commands are not for the world. These commands are for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So, let's look at them quickly. The first command that he gives us in verse 16 is to rejoice always. So let me ask you a question. When Paul says to rejoice always, does that mean that we're to walk around every day of our lives with a smile on our face? We're to act as if we don't have a care in the world, a bounce in our step, kind of, you know, you know, Tigger walking around, bouncing around, always happy. Is that what Paul means when he says, as a Christian, you should rejoice always? Let me take it a step further. Are you sinning if you ever have moments where you're not rejoicing? Are you sinning if, you're ever, if you ever feel sad, if you ever feel upset, if you ever go through moments of depression? Is that a sin? I'll be honest with you. I've met plenty of Christians who would say the answer is yes. They would say that no matter what you're going through, that you should fake it, that you should smile, and that if you act like you've got a problem, if you are honest with yourself, and if you're honest with other people, and you tell them that you're going through a difficult, trying season, that that is a sin. But hear me out on this. If what Paul meant by these two short words, rejoice always, if he meant that you should walk around never having a problem, never being sad, never being upset, well, there's a, a difficulty with that. And that is that not only was Paul upset at times, but guess who else was? Jesus. Jesus was not happy all of his life. In fact, uh, before he was, as he was going before the cross, as he faced the cross, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. It says, he offered up prayers and supplication, listen to this last phrase, with loud cries and tears. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul described himself, listen to how he describes himself, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that we as believers, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. But look at this last phrase. We are also to weep with those who weep. Paul didn't say, hey, believers, you are to go around telling people that are weeping, just stop it. Stop crying and put on a happy face. No, that's not where Paul says at all. So listen, this is extremely important. If, if we're going to understand this, then we need to know that to rejoice always, it does not mean that we are to deny our feelings. It doesn't mean that we are to ignore whatever difficulties we're going through. That we're to put on a happy face or that we're to never feel sad. Say, so, okay, Blake, I understand that if that's what to rejoice always does not mean, then what does it practically mean if I'm looking and I'm seeking to obey this command that Paul gives for all believers to rejoice always? What does it look like to rejoice even in the midst of difficulty? What does it look like to rejoice even when you're walking through a trial? What does it practically look like to rejoice even if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? One thing I think it's critical for us to understand here. I think that we must view this command, these three commands from Paul, more so as a matter of obedience than just a matter of feelings. We live in a feelings-based society. We like to say that you are how you feel. That's not true. Our identity is not how we feel. Our identity is who Christ says that we are. 
So I want you to view this more as a matter of obedience than just how you, you feel emotionally. Let me try to explain this for a minute. Whenever we're in a, a difficult season, whenever we're in a trying season, I'm not just saying you had a hard day, but it's been a difficult week, month, year. You've had trying years. Every single one of us, we have a choice that we can make. We can live our lives in one of two ways. Let me give you the two choices. Choice number one is that we can focus on our trials or on our difficulties. But the other option, the other choice, is that we can choose to set our minds on things above. What do I mean? We set our minds on Christ. We set our minds on His eternal promises that He has given to us. Paul puts it this way in another letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do you see that phrase there? He says to rejoice in what? In the Lord. That's the key. The only reason that you and I have the ability, the only reason that we can rejoice even in trials, even in difficulties, even through the worst news that we can receive is because we are in the Lord. We understand that He purchased our freedom. We understand that He brought us from death to life. We understand that our eternity is secure. We understand that this world is not our home. And when we understand that, that is when we can rejoice because we have a proper perspective that this is not all that the world has to offer us. So to rejoice always, it means, church, that we have an intentional attitude. The key words there is intentional. What's this intentional attitude? It's an intentional attitude of contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Not only are we content, but we're, we have an intentional attitude of hope and joy and where does this contentment come from? Where does this hope and joy come from? It comes from focusing on Christ and the eternal treasures that He has offered to us, that He has promised to us in His Word, that He has freely given to us. We don't earn them. We don't deserve them. He freely gives these gifts and these treasures to us. And you know what? Let me be honest here for just a minute. Sometimes, in fact, I might say many times, we don't feel like rejoicing. We don't feel like there's any joy in us. We know what the Word says. We know we're supposed to be rejoicing, but we just don't feel like it. What are we supposed to do when we're in those times? What are we supposed to do when we know in our head, we know what Scripture says that we're supposed to be rejoicing, but we just don't feel like it? I'll tell you what I think we should do. We should fight for that joy. Too many times I think the devil gets us to believe a lie, and the devil will say, you're the only one that doubts God's wisdom. You're the only one that doubts that God's... No, no, we've all been there before, and you're not sinning if you go through these times where you're just questioning inside of yourself. But instead, during those times and those seasons of doubt, those seasons that you don't want to rejoice, I think that what we need to do is to struggle for that and to fight for that joy. Men and women all throughout God's Word struggled at times to find joy. All you have to do is look at David. David, and I'm going to give you one example. In Psalm chapter 5, 
he begins this psalm crying out to God because he's focused on his enemies. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. So David is in the midst of some life-threatening crisis. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but we know it's difficult. And as he looks upon the difficulties, as he looks upon the trial that he's facing, it says that he's groaning out to the Lord. But then, by the time we get to the end of that psalm, look what he's doing in verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Church, let me ask you a question. Did David's circumstances change from verses 1 and 2 by the time we get to verses 11 and 12? No, of course not. So what changed in order for David to go from the point that he's groaning to now he's rejoicing and saying that we are to sing songs and praise God? What's changed? What's changed is his focus. He's no longer focusing on his circumstance. He's no longer just, just intentional. Has he forgotten about him? Of course not. He still has to walk through that, whatever he's going through. But instead of his eyes, instead of his attention being solely focused on that life-threatening crisis, now he's turned his attention to God and he's able to rejoice. In verses 1 and 2, he's focused on his enemies. But by the time you get to verses 11 and 12, he's now meditating on God's abundant love. By the way, David's not the only example that we have in God's word of someone who at time struggled to find joy in the Lord. The man that wrote the letter that we're reading right now, Paul, there were times that he struggled to find joy. In fact, there's a time in which he was arrested. By the way, he was arrested for working for Jesus, for preaching his gospel, for preaching his name. And instead of giving him a trial, they throw him in prison. But before they throw him in prison, they lock him up. They put him in stocks, and they put him in a Philippian jail. While he is in jail, listen to what he does. Now, church, if there were ever a reason for someone to say, God, have you forgotten about me? God, I thought if I followed you, all the good things were going to happen. I thought your word said that if I loved you, if I prayed, if I witnessed, if I read scripture, that surely only good things will happen to me. But instead, look what he does. He's locked up with Silas in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. What are they doing? They're singing and praising God. Why? Because God's released them and their circumstances have changed? Nope. Not one bit. They're still in prison. They still were beaten. They're still locked up. They still weren't given a trial. But what has changed is their, their perspective, and now they are totally focused on God. The apostles are also an example for us. They, too, were arrested after Jesus had been resurrected back from the dead. They go about, they preach about um, his life, they preach about the resurrection, and listen to what happens to him in Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The natural response would be, man, we better be quiet. 
man, God must be upset with us because if God was happy with us, then these bad things wouldn't have happened, right? That's how a lot of times we think in America. But listen to how they respond in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Church, if it hasn't clicked with you yet, let me tell you one more time. To rejoice always, it means that we are making the intentional choice to place our attention and our focus more on the Lord, more on the promises that he has given us instead of focusing on our circumstances. Now hear me on this before I move to the second command. I want to make sure you understand this. Paul is not telling us that we just ignore our difficulties. He's not saying you just gloss over them or you act as if you don't have any trials. No, no, no. I'm not saying that you should just suck it up and get over it. Nope, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what Paul is teaching us is that we, he's challenging us to focus more on the Lord than on our current situation. That is the only way that we are going to have the ability to rejoice in the Lord. Let's move on to the second command, verse 17. He says to pray without ceasing. And of course, the obvious question here is to pray without ceasing. Does that mean that I'm to go around every waking moment, I'm to, to be verbally praying out loud? No, we know that's not what he means. But what does he mean? I want you to write these three things down. Here's three things what he truly means when he says to pray without ceasing. Number one, to pray without ceasing means that there is a spirit of dependence that should saturate all that we do. It means that even when we're not verbally speaking to God, as we're going throughout our day, that we're living with this deep, abiding dependence upon the Lord. That we understand that we are completely dependent upon Him. And I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this. Because I'm pretty independent. And if I'm honest, there are many things that oh, I can do that for myself. Oh, that we would live with that spirit of dependence. God, if it, aren't, if it wasn't for you, I would not have that next breath. I'm completely dependent upon you. To pray without ceasing, it also means that we pray repeatedly and often. Again, we may not be praying verbally. We might even pray mentally all the time throughout the day. But it does mean that we are praying over and over and over. That our, our first response should be, oh God, you hear that ambulance coming down the street. Oh, God, I'm praying for that person. Someone comes to you at work with a problem. Oh, God, I pray that you would bless them right now. Your child comes to you with something that they're going, Oh, God, I pray that you'd give them peace and protection. That we would live with that constant state that we're praying over and over throughout the day. It's not just something we do at morning or night, but we live to have this conversation, this dialogue with God. And third, to pray without ceasing means not giving up on prayer. It means that we don't abandon praying even when it seems useless even if you've been praying for years and God still hasn't answered the way that you want him to on your timeline you don't give up you keep on praying to pray without ceasing means that we're going to lean into God that we are going to live our lives with the spirit of dependency on him that we're going to pray over and over constantly throughout the day and that we are going to say we're not going to give up looking to you God for guidance and for help. Now again, let's be honest here. What do we do when we know we're supposed to pray without ceasing? 
We just don't have the desire. Again, it's not that we don't know the right answer, but we just don't live with the spirit of dependency on God. I think you look at the the psalmist here. David says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I love the way the message translates this. I don't read this a a lot, but I I think that um, Eugene Peterson did a good job translating this. He said, give me a bent for your words of wisdom and not for piling up loot. What do you do when you don't have that desire for prayer? What do you do when you don't have that desire to pray? I think you admit it to God. You say, God, I admit I don't have a bent towards prayer right now. I don't have that desire, but I'm fighting for it. I want to, and I am asking that you would incline my heart towards you, that whatever that my heart is inclined to right now, whether it's some kind of sports, whether it's activities, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's what social status, Lord, would you take that away and would you give me a bent? Would you incline my heart towards you? And finally, the third command before we take the Lord's Supper is that we are to give thanks in all circumstances, verse 18. Now I want you to notice here, Paul does not say that we are to give thanks for every circumstance. It's a big difference there. But we are to give thanks in every and all circumstances. Giving thanks in every circumstance does not mean that you all of a sudden um, are happy with every situation that you're in. Doesn't mean that you just go through and say, oh, I'm glad that this report came out this way. I'm glad that my family turned against me. I'm glad that I got fired. No, no, that's not what it means at all. It also doesn't mean that you're resigned to accept whatever is going your way without praying and asking God to change it. Again, the difference is your focus. Are you focused more on your present circumstance or are you more focused on God and what he is doing and what he's accomplishing throughout eternity? See, when we are not actively choosing to reject that, that spirit or that um, attitude of ingratitude, that's our sin nature. We are naturally bent towards being ungrateful, aren't we? Doesn't take long for us to look at someone else and say, oh, if I just had their life. Oh, if I just had X, Y, and Z that they had, then life would be easier, Right? It's so easy for us to be ungrateful. And when we, reje- when we choose to not reject that attitude of ingratitude, then what happens is we will focus more on others than what God has in store for us right in front of us. But instead, church, when we choose to live lives of gratitude, that is when we can get rid of those thoughts. And we don't look at what someone else has, but we say, God, my life is yours. I'm going to give thanks to you for where I am, for this season, for this realm of influence you have given me, and would I honor you right where I am. Last statement I want you to write down before we close. As we move into this Thanksgiving season, especially on Thursday, listen to me. We don't need to feel thankful before we give thanks. We don't necessarily have to feel thankful before we ask God and we thank God for what he's blessed us with. Again, this goes back to, I think, the spirit of this is that Paul is saying that that, that what's most important is obedience, not feeling. When God allows us to experience hardships, when God allows us to go through 
trials and difficult circumstances. None of us is happy about it. None of us is going to look up to God and say, oh, thank you so much that you've allowed this difficult thing to happen in my life. But listen to me. It's by faith that for those of us who are in Christ, that have trusted him for our eternal salvation, that even when those difficult times come, we can say, Lord, I look to you and I trust that you are good. Lord, I look to you and I don't like what's going on, but I know that you know what is going on. And Lord, I'm trusting that you are going to work all things together for your good. And ultimately, if it's for your good, it's going to be for my good as well. And even though I don't like it, even though I wouldn't choose this, I'm going to choose to praise you and I'm going to rejoice in you because you are God and you are still on your throne. And God is never up in heaven wringing his hands and, oh no, now what happened? I didn't see this coming. He is working all things together. Again, just like rejoicing, we are to give thanks to God in every circumstance of our life, understanding that he is in control. In our lives, we exist to bring him glory and to bring him honor, not the other way around. So as we transition to this time of receiving the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful reminder of why we can rejoice today. While we were dead in our sins, Christ made us alive. While we were still, what, sinners, Christ saved us. Let's not forget that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that yes, He died for our sins, but three days later, what happened? He came out of that grave, didn't he? And he is alive today. And because that tomb is empty, because he has defeated sin and death and hell and the grave itself, we know for those of us in this room who are in Christ that we have the ultimate and the final victory. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, what a gift you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for his obedience to go before the cross and to pay a debt that he didn't owe, but that each and every one of us owed because of our sin. And I thank you that he willingly died so that we might have life today. And Lord, I pray as we receive the Lord's Supper that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. I pray that we wouldn't receive the Lord's Supper in a flippant manner, that we just rush through because we're at the end of our service, but instead we would pause and give thanks for the gift for the sacrifice of your son so that we can know that we have been purchased with the price. So Lord, work in our hearts, work in our lives even now as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.